from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. to introduce Jillian Longling. Um, she's the coordinator of the Colorado chapter of NOCIRC, National Organization of Circumcision Information Resource Centers, uh, and is a member of the Board of Health Professionals of Intact America, another one of our sponsors. Um, so let's give a hand to Jillian Longling. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for coming today, and thank you for Travis, thank you so much. This is really wonderful. So um, I'm gonna switch the slide immediately to something more interesting to look at while I just introduce myself. <clears throat> We're gonna be talking about ethics today, and I just wanna give you a little of my background. Uh, I work in a neonatal intensive care unit in a newborn nursery, so I'm around circumcision every day, and I see the realities of the complications, the trauma, the pain, uh, the realities of how little parents know about what they're being asked to decide about and the realities of how little doctors are telling them about it and how little the doctors themselves know about it. So that's what I'm doing here. There's a lot that needs to be changed in uh, birthing, but circumcision is certainly one of them. So, John? <laughs> it's, I don't really know, I just love the picture. All right. Well, anyway, so there's a lot more about medical ethics than I'm going to be able to cover in the 40 minutes that it's probably going to be 45 minutes. Um, so, but uh, has anybody here ever taken a medical ethics class? Are there any health professionals here? Okay. Yay. Okay. So I recommend if you're a student to take a medical ethics class because it's really interesting and it's certainly um, applicable here. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so uh, the other thing I was gonna mention is that there are some extra materials in your packet. There's a bioethics handout from NOCERC, and then there's a resource sheet that has places where you can go if you really wanna delve into more information that can tell you where to go for more ethical information. Okay, so in looking at the ethics of uh, non-therapeutic infant cir circumcision, there's two key questions that we are gonna look at. And the first is, is it ethically acceptable to alter the natural genitals of, ch of a child when no compelling therapeutic reason exists? And you would say there isn't any other category of human being that you would say it was an okay thing to strap them down and cut off part of their genitals without their permission, but, but this is what we do for, for baby boys. We wouldn't do it to an adult, we wouldn't do it to a girl, there's federal laws against that. But in this country, Doctors and parents act as if this is an okay thing to do to a boy. But when you look at the medical ethics and the human rights principles, that does not support that. Second question is, who is the appropriate person to give permission for elective non-therapeutic cutting of anyone's genitals? And historically, up to a certain point in the United States, uh, it was the doctor that made the decision. It was just done. Uh, baby came back to the mom. First time she saw them, his penis had been cut. Um, but then in the 1970s, medical ethics changed to acknowledge that the patient had a right to make their own decisions about their body. So, well, it changed from the doctor now to being a parental decision. We haven't gone quite far enough because actually the person who is the patient, the person whose body's most affected is not the parent, but the, the boy himself. They make a lot in um, you know, American medical lingo of it being a personal choice. And 
basically they're referring it to the the, the uh, parents or the family's p uh, personal choice, but uh, but really it's the boy who's the person that matters. Now I am talking about male infant circumcision here, uh, but this could the questions that we're talking about, the principles we're looking at, could be applied for female cutting or for uh, genital cutting of intersex patients. All right, we're going to talk about the principles of medical ethics and the human rights. I'm going to talk about sp ethics of specific common arguments made for circumcision, informed consent, and conscientious objection of health professionals to, uh, that is refusal to perform uh, circumcisions, and also talk about where we need to go from here with ethics. So there are four principles of medical ethics that are usually used to analyze a, a situation, and it's a kind of an oversimplified system. and. Um, there aren't any clear guidelines of how to balance these four principles all the time, but it's a helpful approach. It's, it's widely used, and I am going to use some of these terms. So the first uh, principle is the principle of autonomy, and that calls for respecting the patient's right to freely make his own decisions about medical interventions. And that's typically considered the foremost of these four principles because it's based on a core ethic of respecting the fundamental self-determining dignity of in each individual human being. And out of that respect, assuming that that individual is truly the best one to make their own decisions about things that is going to impact their body um, out of their own values and preferences. Now, neonatal circumcision, obviously, the decision being made by the parent, clearly that, that is overriding the future autonomy of the child to make his own decisions about his own body. The second principle is beneficence, which looks at whether the proposed intervention can reasonably be expected to do the patient any good. Now, we've talked about some of the medical background here. I think one thing that hasn't been specifically said in the earlier presentations is that no medical organization in the world recommends routine infant circumcision for health benefits. So, and the other thing is even if there were some um, health benefits, there's only going to be a small proportion of males that would ever uh, derive a benefit from it. So neonatal circumcision does not meet this beneficence principle. The third principle is non-maleficence, which is whether that intervention avoids doing unnecessary harm. And we've seen that circumcision does do harm physically, emotionally, sexually, um, and those harms are unnecessary because there are more conservative ways to gain whatever health benefits you want, like simply washing or, you know, uh, safe sex behaviors and those kinds of things. The fourth principle of medical ethics is justice, and this factor is really is, is saying, is what we're doing fair? Are we distributing the benefits and burdens of health uh, interventions in society in a, in, a, in a fair way? And in the case of genital cutting practices, we should be asking the question, well, are we treating males the same as we are females? Are we treating adults the same as we are children? And obviously the answer is no. Now on top of medical ethics principles, the United Nations has promulgated um, a number of landmark statements on human rights, and these also apply to circumcision. And like medical ethics, these human rights statements are based on the recognition of the inherent dignity of all human beings and of the rights that come from that inherent human dignity. And it's worth noting that non-religious circumcision as practiced here in the United States got started in the 19th century, which was before this, this uh, um, development of international 
uh, understanding of human rights and before the modern articulation of these medical ethical principles. Um, so circumcising societies like the United States have been uh, you know, behind the curve as far as um, applying modern um, human rights principles to something that's already an entrenched cultural practice. Now, the first of these was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came out in 1948, right after the founding of the United Nations. And that term universal that's in a couple of these titles means no exceptions. This applies to everybody, uh, adults, children, males and females, and so forth. And according to these uh, various statements, and there's others um, that I didn't list, um, children are understood as having the same rights as adults, but they're also understood as needing additional protections because, obvious, because of their obvious vulnerability. And so we got a specific convention on the rights of the child in 1989. Now, here's just some of the rights that are enumerated in, in these various documents as uh, that could be seen as relating to circumcision, and there's others that I haven't listed here, but Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states that all humans have the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And security of person in international human rights law means it's there to ensure the physical integrity of every person being protected. Everyone has the right to property, and one's body being one's most essential property right to freedom from torture and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, right to equal protection before the law. And the special rights that were enumerated for children include, this is an earlier form of the Convention for the Rights of the Child, the right to opportunities for children to develop physically, mentally, morally, spiritually, and socially in a healthy and normal manner and in conditions of freedom and dignity. Also, the right to protection from all forms of mental and physical violence, injury, and abuse, including sexual abuse, and the rights of protection from traditional practices prejudicial to the health of children, which certainly covers genital cutting practices. Okay, there's a couple of other medical ethics texts that are relevant, and I'm gonna quote from some of these as we go along. And these are more specific to clinical contexts. The Codes of ethics of the various medical organizations, the AMA. There are circumcision positions, position statements from various medical organizations, all those acronyms there. The AAP, I'll refer to several times, is the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they also have a specific document on the problems with proxy consent in pediatric practice where parents have to make decisions for children. And so these dovetail with the, the other things we've just talked about, um, but there's some contradictions between them which I'll point out. Now, there's a lot of theoretical stuff to ethics, but it's not, medical ethics is not just about theoretical words. What it's about is doing the right thing for human beings in medical settings. And circumcision has ethical implications in relation to the human beings that are affected by it. And of course, in the US, it's boys and men who are the ones who are most egregiously affected, but also women and parents and health professionals are also ethically impacted. So in talking about the ethics of circumcision, I wanted to give voice to those who are affected by it and kind of humanize it, make it real. Um, now, parents are told that they're making, they have to make a choice for their child, but it's not just making a choice for a baby, it's making a choice for the man that he's going to one day become. And I have a few quotes here I'm going to show you from men who were circumcised as babies um, without their consent, 
and um, that gives voice to them uh, uh, for their sense of violation that came from that. And not all men are going to feel this way about having been circumcised without their consent, but many are troubled by it uh, by, to one degree or another, and these quotes will give you an indication of the seriousness of having had this decision taken away from them. When you do it to a baby, there's no way back. I never, I'll never know what sex would be like with a foreskin. It makes me angry that somebody else decided for me to do something that I probably would not have done if I was deciding for myself. I have never been able to accept the fact that someone cut part of my penis off when I was a baby. The sheer monstrousness of it haunts every waking moment of my life. So again, ethics requires us to consider the impact of our actions on the well-being and the rights of the people who are affected. And we could easily sympathize with victims of genital cutting, uh, female genital cutting, who would say something like this, but our culture has kind of led us or programmed us to overlook this type of uh, expression from men or to deny them or to belittle them. So it's very important for everyone to remember that the primary stakeholder in the circumcision decision is the man himself, the boy and the man he'll become. So here's the core statement of the ethical problem with neonatal circumcision, that it's a non-therapeutic, medically unnecessary, irreversible amputation of a normal, healthy, functional body part from a non-consenting person. <clears throat> There's no disease or deformity present in the penis of a newborn baby that requires any kind of decision about surgery, and yet surgery is being offered for whatever social or cosmetic reasons a parent um, might think they want it done. Now, amputative surgeries that completely remove or destroy a natural body part are typically viewed as a last resort in medicine because they are irreversible, and whatever harm that that produces from the loss of that body part is going to permanently alter the person's life with no going back. So generally, there's uh, treatments that could serve a body part are uh, typically preferred in medical ethics. Now, in support of the autonomy of an otherwise competent patient, amputative surgeries that remove a normal, healthy body part, such as non-therapeutic circumcision, would be considered ethically okay when requested by a fully informed adult. But non-therapeutic amputations at the request of somebody else, other than the person who's having it done to them, would be ethically rejected almost out of hand, except Again, this is exactly what we do to baby boys every day without giving them any say in you know, having a choice about their own body. So in the absence of a valid medical indication, non-consenting circumcision violates the person's human right to sovereignty over his own body. And that is a right that's so fundamental that that's the basis of assault law, and that's why consent is considered so important in modern medical ethics. Now, I want to go into two of the main justifications that are given by defenders of circumcision and cover the ethics. The first one is that the argument that the amputation of the foreskin of newborns might have potential medical benefits. But I want to stop before I do that. And first, I want to point out that there's a basic framing problem with framing it in terms of risks and benefits. I've seen parent information handouts that discuss the risks of being uncircumcised. And what this is doing is framing 
it's pathologizing the foreskin. It's framing it as a problem or a disease ready to happen or some kind of potential medical problem instead of just the normal body part that it is. But this is the discourse that our culture has bought into with regard to cutting the genitals of baby boys. Okay, so there, Margaret Somerville, who I'm gonna quote from here, is a lawyer and a bioethicist from McGill University. And she has written in this book, The Ethical Canary, a common error made by those who wanna justify infant male circumcision on the basis of medical benefits is that they believe that as long as some such benefits are present, circumcision can be justified as therapeutic in the sense of preventative health care. She says this is not correct. She says a medical benefits or therapeutic justification for procedure requires that the benefits sought outweigh the risks and harms of the procedure, that the procedure is the only reasonable way to obtain those benefits, and that the benefits are necessary to the well-being of the child. And none of these conditions, she says, is fulfilled by routine infant circumcision. The benefits do not clearly outweigh the risks. There are effective conservative measures for preventing or treating potential problems. And most of the conditions that circumcision is touted for do not apply to children, like sexually transmitted diseases. So in summary, she says, if we view a child's foreskin as having a valid function, we are no more justified in amputating it than any other part of the child's body unless the operation is medically required treatment and the least harmful way to provide that treatment. And with some variations, these same kinds of arguments could be used to debunk arguments made for potential public health benefits for circumcision as well. So going back to our question number one, is it ethically acceptable to surgically alter the natural genitals of a child when no compelling therapeutic reason exists? Well, no. Non-therapeutic newborn circumcision of males violates all four of the core principles of medical ethics and a host of human rights principles. And circumcision of a child is acceptable only when medically necessary and only when conservative treatment approaches have failed. The second main justification that is given by defenders of neonatal circumcision is the argument that if parents, that it's the parents' right to make this decision for their sons. And indeed, in general, in our society, parents are given a wide latitude in child-rearing decisions of all kinds, which includes medical treatment based on the Constitution's right to privacy. But remember, going back, the principle of autonomy is considered the lead principle in medical ethics, all other things being equal. And there has to be a good reason for overriding that principle. So one such case in which the autonomy principle could be justified in being overridden is when there is a true need for medical treatment for a child. So children are not considered cognitively able to make their own uh, medical decisions. They're not um, mature enough uh, mentally or have enough life experience to act autonomously on their own. So in the case of true medical need, the beneficence principle is going to take over from autonomy to protect the child's well-being. And the parents are given, in this case, the role of proxy or surrogate decision makers as guardians of the child's interests. 
Now, the ideal standard for a medical decision that's being made for someone who's not competent is what that person would want for themselves. That's the autonomy principle. And that's what uh, an advanced directive is for an adult. They leave instructions, this is what I want to have done uh, later on when I'm incompetent. But with proxy decision-making for children, well, we can't really directly know what a child would actually want for himself. So what usually happens is that the when a decision has to be made for a child, the idea of the child's best interests becomes the guideline for making decisions. And here from various sources are some of the factors that go into determining what may be the child's best interest. Maximizing benefits while minimizing harms, considering both physical and emotional aspects. Uh, preferring the least restrictive and least intrusive way to get the desired benefits, taking into consideration families' views and social cultural background, also taking into consideration the patient's wishes, feelings, and values to the extent that you can ascertain them. And the BMA, which is the British Medical Association, and the one uh, medical organization that's done a very thorough look at the best interest standards in relation to circumcision, they say one of the things that goes into um, determining best interests is the prior prioritizing of options which maximize the patient's future opportunities and choices. So what the BMA is saying is that consideration must be given for not closing down the patient's future autonomy unnecessarily, even when there is a medical need present. And as we've seen with neonatal circumcision, since there's no problem, no decision having to be made, there's really no reason why the child's future autonomy should not be given full consideration. Now, there are a number of problems with pediatric proxy consent. And for our purposes, I'll just simply say the bottom line is that parents don't own the child. They are actually the guardians of the child's interests. And there are limits on what the patient, uh, parents may do to a child. Now, parental proxy consent is considered appropriate for cases of actual medical needs, such as diagnosis or treatment of an actual problem, to protect the child's well-being. But there are legal and ethical scholars in the US, in Canada, in the UK, in Australia, all who have questioned whether it's legally valid for proxy consent to apply to non-therapeutic procedures. The other thing to remember is it is the child that's the patient. And even though parents are typically accorded the right to make medical decisions, the AAP warns in their proxy consent statement, pediatric health providers have legal and ethical duties to their child patients to render competent medical care based on what the patient needs, not on what someone else expresses. There are some other general problems with proxy consent in that um, proxies may not always make the best decisions for their wards. And uh, some of the reasons for this is that there's a risk that they may use their own values or concerns to make these decisions. And there's a risk that they may overlook or minimize the possible harms of any decisions they make since it's not their body that's going to be affected. And also there are actual studies that show that, you know, when you had a, a, a person who had designated a surrogate, but the person was still competent. Well, they, they asked the uh, real person what they would do for a certain situation, and they asked the surrogates what they thought they would do, and it turns out that they are all often not the same thing as what the surrogate would actually want have wanted, and it actually is even worse when it's an elective intervention, like circumcision. Okay. <clears throat> so, considering all of the foregoing, what does the AAP say about all this in their medical uh, circumcision position statement? They say, 
In cases such as the decision to perform a circumcision in the neonatal period when there are potential benefits and risks and the procedure is not essential to the child's current well-being, well, it should be the parents who determine what's in the best interest of the child, in their opinion. And so what they've done is basically bypassed any consideration of the rights of the child, even as they are stating that this is not essential to his well-being. However, if you look at their proxy consent statement, and this is where the contradiction came in, the AAP does acknowledge the child as a stakeholder in medical decision-making in this. And although they don't explicitly extrapolate these principles to infants, they're really quite uh, applicable to the circumcision scenario. They say parents should not exclude children from decision-making without persuasive reasons. So I would argue that there really are no persuasive reasons for excluding a baby from future decision-making about his body. A, a child patient's reluctance or refusal to assent to a procedure should carry considerable weight when the proposed intervention is not essential to his or her welfare and or can be deferred without substantial risk. Well, the AAP just said it wasn't essential and there is no substantial risk to a child having a foreskin. So I, there, I think we should just be also giving the child's future option to forego circumcision some considerable weight. Now, I just want to compare the AAP's approach to the ethics of circumcision to the way that the circumcision position statement of the Dutch Royal Medical Association, which just came out, um, addresses it. And you'll see, this is a country that's never practiced circumcision. Most countries in the world never have. The US is unique this way. Um, and you'll see that this Dutch statement is much more in line with the medical ethics principles and human rights principles that we've been talking about. Insofar as there are medical benefits, it is reasonable to put off circumcision until the age at which such a risk is relevant and the boy himself can decide about the intervention or can opt for any available alternatives himself. Non-therapeutic circumcision of male minors is contrary to the rule that minors may only be exposed to medical treatments if illness or abnormalities are present, again, therapeutic, or if it can be convincingly demonstrated that the medical intervention is in the interests of the child with that list that we looked at. Non-therapeutic circumcision of male minors, and they're pretty direct right here, conflicts with the child's right to autonomy and physical integrity. I don't know why it has to be so difficult for Americans to figure this out. Okay, and I'm gonna stick it in a little further here. I took um, the ethics statements from the circumcision position statements from the Netherlands, Australia, UK, British Columbia, Canada didn't have anything. The American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Family Physicians on the right. And the topics that were looked at in those relating to ethics. And along the side it's saying, did it say it was the parent's choice? Did they acknowledge the child as a stakeholder or suggest that the child ought to be able to make his own decision? Do they acknowledge the ethical problems? Do they acknowledge legal problems? Or perhaps in a couple of cases, they mentioned that it might you know, reasonably made, be made illegal, just like female genital cutting. Did they compare it ethically to female cutting? And did they acknowledge that um, health professionals have the right to refuse to participate through conscientious objection? Of the American position statements, the AAP only talks about the parent's right to choose. 
And the uh, family practice uh, one says, a physician performing a procedure for other than medical reasons on a non-consenting patient raises ethical concerns, but they don't talk any further about it. So our second question, who is the appropriate person to give permission for elective non-therapeutic cutting of anyone's genitals? The owner of the penis, the man himself when he's old enough to give his own informed and voluntary consent based on his own values and preferences. And there is no ethical problem with the circumcision of, with circumcision voluntarily chosen by adequately informed adults. And I just couldn't resist this because this kind of puts it all together. This is a genital integrity activism poster that highlights that issue of self-determination and choice and very clearly shows the wrong of forcing unwanted body modifications on a physically restrained and gagged person. Now, it's very easy to see the ethical violation when it's done to an adult, but again, in our culture, we're programmed and acculturated to ignore it when it's a baby whose rights are being violated. All right, now moving on from the ethical impacts on the male himself, I also want to give a voice to the ways that parents are ethically violated by circumcision. It was assault on him, and on some level, it was an assault on me. I will go to my grave hearing that horrible wail. If only once someone had mentioned that it wasn't medically necessary, I know I would have questioned it, but no one did. I really honestly don't think I will ever forgive myself for letting this happen to him. And this is from a YouTube video of a very articulate young mother who did circumcise her son and later came to regret it. And she said she thought she was informed, but she later found out a lot of things that she didn't get a chance to consider, which she lists in her video. And she says, I didn't know that it would affect breastfeeding, that it would look so gruesome, that it would affect the sensitivity of the penis, that the foreskin had a purpose, that there was a risk of death. And she said that's the one that got her the most when she learned that. She, I didn't think that I might, uh, I might possibly regret it so seriously. And she said that had to do with the irreversibility of what she had done. And she says she never thought that he might not want to be circumcised. So this leads us to how parents are educated about circumcision and the topic of informed consent. So the doctrine of what's called informed consent has only been codified into medical practice um, since about the 1970s, but it's now considered one of the cornerstones of modern medical ethics. Informed consent refers to the patient's right to agree to or to refuse a proposed medical intervention based on an adequate understanding of the implications of his decision. And again, this is based on respecting the self-determining dignity of the individual and has that practical beneficence-based function of supporting that patient's interest in making rational decisions. And because this is in an area where most people don't have a whole lot of knowledge. Patients are kind of in a one-down position. They need that information. So what are the elements that make a consent valid? in an, a legal sense or, or an ethical sense. Valid consent means that um, 
first of all, consent is only valid if it's been given by a mentally competent person. We talked about the children not being considered competent. A person with schizophrenia wouldn't be considered competent, so then you get uh, a surrogate or proxy being designated to give that. Second, consent is only valid if it's given voluntarily and autonomously. That is, it must not be subject to coercion, like threats, and it must not be subject to manipulation, like rewards or punishments or deception of some kind. Uh, consent is only valid if it's based on adequate disclosure of any information that would be needed to help the lay patient understand the implications of what they're being asked to agree to. And finally, the consenting patient must actually understand the information that's being given. And some of the factors that can impair understanding, and these, a lot of these are present with newborn babies, is pain, being on pain medication, stress, informational overload, uh, the complexity of language, the reading level that's used, and very importantly with informed consent, the amount of time that a person is given to consider their decision. The information that's required to be disclosed for valid consent is typically understood to include information on the nature of the health problem. Again, there's no health problem with the newborn penis. Nature of the pr proposed procedure, the, the uh, risk and benefits of that procedure, and very importantly, comparable information about uh, any reasonable alternatives to the procedure so that the patient can make a valid comparison between the relative's advantages and disadvantages of their options. And the more elective that is non-medically necessary, the more elective the proposed procedure, the higher uh, the level of disclosure that's required. And that's out of respect for the patient having the right to more carefully consider their decisions when the intervention is really not clearly necessary. Now, the inadequacy of informed consent for circumcision has been noted in the medical literature for a very long time. And here are some findings from one of the most detailed studies of informed consent that surveyed both practitioners and mothers in several different institutions back in the 1990s. And in terms of process, nearly half of the practitioners that performed circumcisions had not talked to parents about circumcision before the birth. And of those practitioners who did circs and provided prenatal care, more than a quarter of them never brought it up before the birth. Now, of the mothers, 29% said that they had discussed circumcision, only 29%, shall I say, uh, had discussed circumcision before the birth with either their obstetrician or their pediatrician. And 25% of the mothers, but mm, more than a third in some other surveys, reported, reported that they did not receive enough information to make their decision about circumcision, and yet they were making the decision. Now, I am going to go over some content that comes up here, but specifically from this survey, um, they did find that uh, of parents who requested circumcision after the birth, some physicians that were um, observed here, and they, some of this was survey and some of this was just watching what they did and taking notes, um, some of the physicians, when the parents had requested circumcision, appeared to assume that the discussion of reasons for or against had already been covered, so all they did was explain the procedure and some of the risks, but they didn't talk anything about the alternative of not circumcising. Some other specifics of content from some other surveys. This is specifically on complications and how parents are informed about this. In two different surveys, parents were found to be most often informed only of 
the general risks of surgery, that is pain, infection, and bleeding, just those three. That was the majority of what they were told. But there are dozens of circumcision-specific complications documented in the literature that just weren't talked about. This other survey, in another survey, more than 60% did not mention the possibility of damage to other parts of the penis, like the glands. Uh, and 92% of the practitioners who were surveyed did not mention the, the possibility of death, which is rare, but it is a real possibility. Now, I actually did a, um, a master's thesis that involved uh, doing a content analysis of parent circumcision information handouts, so this is why I'm so interested in this. But um, I did it specifically, 55 parent circumcision information handouts, and I was looking for how do they cover the alternative of not circumcising, because this has just been totally ignored, except for that little bit in the previous uh, study I told you about. So what I did was uh, I, I read these handouts, and I found within them 12 different topic areas that relate to not circumcising. And that had to do with how do they talk about the anatomy, the functions, the care, the development of the intact penis. How do they talk about intact penile hygiene in terms of how is that framed? We'll talk about framing. Um, what kind of counterinformation was given when a claim for a medical or social justification was given for circumcision? Like they say, well, it prevents penile cancer, but do they mention that it's really, really rare? Or did they just leave it at, well, it prevents penile cancer? Um, did they talk about the ethics of neonatal circumcision? Did they talk about the fact that circumcision is not practiced in most societies? And what kind of terms did they use to refer to the normal penis? Norm did they use the word uncircumcised, or did they talk about a normal penis, a natural penis, an intact penis? So I looked at all these 12 things. And I scored it. If they, if they did a decent job in each one, they got one point for each of those. So you could get a maximum of, of 12 points. So here's, here's how it turned out. I got a ton of data out of this study. It was really interesting, but I can only show you a couple of things. So uh, this is the general overall adequacy score for how did they talk about not circumcising. And uh, you can look along the bottom, and you'll see this, the groups of, um, there was one pro-circumcision handout. They got a score of 1.5 out of 12. The North American medical organizations, there were six of them, so they had an average of 3.83 things that they talked about out of the possible 12. The North American miscellaneous, other health sources, a little bit higher. And then you get to Australia and New Zealand. And, and I made my cutoff as six out of 12 ought to be, you know, I'll call that adequate, you know. Uh, and this is where we get into that category. They had an average for theirs of 6.7 for their handouts, talking about not circumcising. The anti-circumcision handouts ended up with a score of 10.3 out of 12. And you look at this and you say, well, that's got to be biased. I mean, that's just so high there. But what, what the anti-circumcision handouts were doing was giving information about the alternative of not circumcising. And they were doing a very good, thorough job of it. What's more concerning is what's not being talked about on the other end of the spectrum. Of the North American sources, they were only talking about four out of a possible 12 relevant things that could be talked about. So parents who are only relying on these kinds of sources are not really giving fully informed consent for circumcision, at least as far as knowledge about what is the foreskin, what do I need to know about the choice of not circumcising. 
Another feature that I looked at in my handout study was how the alternative of not circumcising was framed. And this is a whole interesting topic in psychology and communication studies, but framing is a concept which refers to the fact that how a story is told is it affects how that information is perceived. So there's the risk in, uh, fr for framing in health communication of um, altering a person's cognitive understanding of. It, it can have detrimental effects, in other words, on a patient's understanding uh, and on patient autonomy. It can be used for benefit too as well, but in, in this case there's a, there was a problem. Now, John gave a really good example of that relative risk and absolute risk. It's, you know, it's basically when you give only a relative risk, like saying, you know, circumcision reduces your child's risk of X, Y, and Z by 60%. Well, that sounds like a lot, you know. Uh, that's the relative risk. But if the likelihood of ever actually getting that disease is really, really small, well, then the absolute risk reduction is not going to make a whole lot of difference. And this is where we get relative risk information only, which is really mostly what shows up in uh, the, the information parents are given. It unrealistically exaggerates the impression of benefit from circumcision. Now, in my study, the second one down, uh, I found that when they talked about hygiene of the intact penis, it was much more often discussed in the North American handouts using negatively framed messages instead of positive ones. And what I mean by that is like giving the impression that if you don't clean your boy's uncircumcised penis properly, there could be dire consequences, you know, you can get this or that disease, you know, that's a negatively framed way of talking about hygiene, as opposed to just saying, well, it's very easy to take care of the intact penis, you know, that's a positively framed message, and there was much more of the negative ones in the North American. Finally, omission of relevant information. Framing is defined as much by what's left out as by, you know, what you include. So, and, and that's, you know, that's what we saw here. This is left out on that side. Um, and so what's left out, what happens is, is that ethically and practically, parents are in a really big problem if you leave out relevant information because how can you weigh your alternatives if you're only told about one thing, you know, one option? How can you take into consideration something that you don't even know exists? So what this ends up doing is this constitutes informational manipulation, and we talked about the elements of valid informed consent. What this, in, you're in, manipulating, that's the voluntariness standard, and you're doing it with information, that's the informed standard. So it's violating two principles of the validity of informed consent when you do any of these things. Now, I'm just gonna finish with informed consent with one other slide here, and I have a caveat here as well. Even if parents were given complete and unmanipulated information, proper informed consent does not make circumcision of children ethical. If non-therapeutic circumcision of children shouldn't be done in the first place, and if parents are not the ones who ought to be making that decision, then the information, you know, informed consent of parents is a moot situation, although, of course, an adult choosing it for himself should, should have this um, proper informed consent. But here's the thing, the reality of it is that parents are being given the choice whether to cut their genitals and they're not being given anywhere near adequate information on which to make that decision. So I believe, working in this hospital setting where I see this going on every day, I believe that insisting on higher standards for informed consent is part of what we need to do to shift the practice in our country because it gives parents the opportunity to make a truly informed decision for that person who is depending on them
And it also forces health professionals to become more informed about things like the functions of the foreskin or the value and the normalcy of leaving boys whole. Things that they're currently not very well educated about. And this in turn can lead to more of them maybe reconsidering their position on being involved with circumcision. So the last little segment here has to do with health professionals and how circumcision ethically impacts them. Um, this quote, I did not become a nurse to hurt babies in 1992. Oh, excuse me. I did not become a nurse to hurt babies. I have my reading glasses on, so I missed a period there. In 1992, I gave notice to my employers that I would no longer be an accomplice in the atrocity that is infant circumcision. So she refused to participate. And this is the position I've taken at, at my work. I've been threatened with termination twice because of that. I have reclaimed my tattered soul and begun the process of becoming whole again. A number of medical organizations acknowledge the uh, health professionals' right to not participate in circumcisions. It's broad, this is, conscientious objection is broadly acknowledged in, uh, for health professionals. To, to not particip have to participate in things that they have a cultural or, or religious or ethical objection to. And there are nurses and doctors all across the country who have said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to be involved with circumcisions. But there are a lot of barriers uh, to conscientious objection. I think the primary one, as I've mentioned, is the lack of education of health professionals. They simply don't have enough information about the foreskin and about the ethics involved to lead them to be able to form any kind of ethical stance. It took me a while to get to the point, I mean, I didn't circumcise my sons, but you know, I didn't know that much about it. It was just a gut level thing. And, and as I, you know, worked in the hospital environment, I still thought, well, it's, it's the parents' decision, you know, I want to be a team player, so I would clean up and I would set up and that sort of thing. And then when I really started learning about it, about 10 years ago, got on, on I, there was no internet when I had my kids, I finally started digging into what's out there and I was realizing, oh, not only do I not just like this, this is really wrong, you know, and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. So it takes time for someone to become educated enough to take that stance and just say, no way. Um, so we need to change medical education. The other is the problem with the lack of ethical leadership from the AAP, and you saw the way they wishy-washed about it's the parent's choice and so forth. They're putting the message out to practitioners out there that this is an okay thing to do to children and uh, you, you're there to do whatever the parents want. So they do that. They're not getting any other message from them, although we did see that from the other um, medical organizations outside of the U.S. There's also a host of problems at the institutional level. Threats, stonewalling, uh, harassment, um, this goes on all the time and um, I think you know, there's personal concerns of some doctors, but basically everybody's afraid of sticking their necks out. I've talked to the, the uh, ethics committee head at my hospital, and he's very, oh, this is very interesting, but, you know, he just, you know, he's just going to sort of go along with what's doing. They don't want, nobody wants to rock the boat. Now, there are a bunch of other ethical issues that I don't have time to talk about that are more specific that I just want to kind of whet your idea of commercial use of amputated foreskin tissue is a good one you know, where religious rights and child's rights interface with each other. So please continue to educate yourself about this and go out and, uh, and start to put these pieces together. It's, it's important that anybody that's educated in this area ha see that this is the bottom line of what it's all about and to be able to explain to others why circumcision is not ethically valid. So in closing, I want to indicate a couple of avenues that we have the opportunity to move forward from 
to have a more ethical future with circumcision. First is the education of health professional, professionals on the foreskin and the ethics of circumcision, which is currently seriously deficient. And when more health professionals are educated enough to understand that this has no place in modern ethical medical practice, it, it will end. Second is culture. Cultural blindness can color our perceptions of ethics and human rights. I've pointed that out a couple of times. This is a statue from a, a statue park in Norway. It's one of the many of the countries that have never practiced circumcision. And um, here, the foreskin is seen as familiar. It seemed as normal. And in that country, there are medical organizations and governmental children's advocates who are actively working to protect all children, both males and females, from non-consenting genital cutting and compare that to our complacent attitude here in the US. But our culture is changing. The rates are going down, and hopefully we're nearing a tipping point. It's no longer the overwhelming norm, and it's conferences like this that are gonna to lead to a more critical mass of people who really understand the foreskin and the ethical issues involved. Finally, I would say gender is another area where we need to move forward on, and as we've seen, there's a big disconnect between how, the attitudes that we have towards female and male genital cutting, but you have to argue from the parallels of the ethics of those two. It's part of the necessary ethical discourse to move us forward. If you can see those parallels, then another uh, chink has been made in the wall. So anybody here who's in concerned with gender, who's concerned with feminist issues or concerned with female cutting or equal rights or any of those things, it's very important that you understand that male genital cutting is an issue that all human beings have to deal with and we all need to work together to protect all children. So finally, I'd like to end with a quote from the circumcision position statement of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia, and that's another one that has done a really thorough job of discussing the ethics of neonatal circumcision. Ethics points us to corrective vision, that is, to question practices that have become routine or which we have taken for granted. So I would say it's time for our culture to stop being complacent about circumcision. It's time for us to question it. It's time for us to think ethically about it. And then it's time to go out and be part of that ethical correction that we need. So thank you very much. I'm wondering about um, the fact that pediatricians who are not trained surgeons are practicing um, circumcisers. I mean, well, doctors are taught to do procedures. I mean, you can do different kinds of minor procedures. It's just a matter of whether you've been taught or not. So pediatricians and family practice doctors do it. Um, obstetricians have done most of the circumcisions in the United States, and they are trained surgeons, but they are trained to be the professionals that take care of women and not children. So that's the odd thing, I think. Um, yeah, pediatricians and family practice are the only ones that do it in my hospital, but some places it's only the obstetricians that do it. And that's an interesting thing is that I did recently talk to a uh, family practice doctor who saw Ellie's film and said, I think I've done my last circumcision. And uh, she said that for family practice, they're like the lowest man on the totem pole. You know, they don't get to do anybody. Everybody looks down on them. And this is one little procedure that they can do. And I can get good at this. And, you know, I can say I can do procedures. And that there's a certain thing about that, that now she sees through it. But that was some, one of the things that was motivating her to do them. So. Jillian, that was excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. I enjoyed it thoroughly. 
Um, I have a question for you, and, it, and it, it was certainly beyond the scope of your time frame to go into this, but there's the autonomy of the individual, but there also could be argued there's the autonomy of the family and the group in which the family finds itself. And so, of course, there's going to be groups who make an argument that if you take away this procedure on this child, you're taking away the bond we have with that child, the bond that child has with our tribe. And so one of the, one of the escape valves in your, in your bioethical analysis here is, of course, alleging that. Alleging that if you're an Orthodox Jew or if you're a, an African animist or if you're a Somali Muslim, that somehow that gives you a certain tribal, felt tribal need to do your historical procedures on your children, lest you, lest you reject that child as not uh, uh, an adequate member of the family or an adequate member of the tribe. Right. Do you see that as a problem, I'm guessing? Well, um, let's see. I don't have a PhD in bioethics, so I, I may not do this like a perfect answer, but I, I caught some things that I think I can respond to. Um, first of all, in terms of, and we talked about this during the break, uh, the uh, human rights documents from the United Nations um, does specify all these different rights that human beings have. And at the bottom, and it includes religion, and it you know, includes you know, right to you know, your traditional practices. But at the end it says, nothing in this document should be taken to uh, give you the right to overrule somebody else's right. And the very first one at the very top of the Declaration of Human Rights is security of person. So, you know, I don't think, I don't think the uh, affiliative uh, argument is necessarily going to win the, you know, be the dominant argument. There's certainly this other way of looking at that, that, you know, causing harm to the physical integrity of a, of a child. Sorry, your religion does not allow for that. Um, let me see if there was something else that came up with that. I know Ellie, this came up in uh, Ellie's film uh, about, and I don't know how you answered it in the film. Do you want to just say something quick? Because I know it came up in talking to your dad about uh, uh, the being part of the tribe or not. And... Yeah, I mean, the way it, you'll see, hopefully you'll see later on in the film, but um, the particular context, my father brought up the sort of being part of a community and the sociological rationale and the shaming and the shunning that would go on to a member who wasn't circumcised. And I cut to, um, you know, naughtily, I cut to an analytic philosopher, uh, Raja Halwani, uh, who I put the question to, and his argument was that the question of shame is whether or not the shame is merited. Um, and the, the mere fact that someone feels shame about not being circumcised or not being the way everyone else is isn't enough to recommend the practice. But um, more to the point, uh, I, I constantly try to blur the line. I resist this distinction between, you know, a person who's circumcising for Orthodox faith uh, or, uh, you know, a Somali family who wants to circumcise their daughter for cultural slash religious reasons and Americans doing it in hospitals. I'm constantly trying to blur this because I think at root we're all human beings and so the ethical um, sort of problems are actually quite similar. And I was thinking also um, in terms of when you talk about the, the tribe and the culture, I spoke recently with a rabbi who um, uh, was talking about the importance of these these societal uh, rituals and so forth, and and how difficult it is to take them away from society. People don't, you you, you can't just take away what what people have revered for a long time. Something that's so uh, uh, such an integral part of their uh, uh, cultural or group psyche. 
But in, so instead, what's happening, what's happening in Africa with the girls there and within the Jewish community is the Brit Shalom or these naming ceremonies, doing the ceremonies, giving the girls the gifts without cutting them. So if we can replace them, Christmas was re, replaced the pagan rituals at, 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 at the winter solstice. We could do the same thing with these and, and perhaps promoting those will help. I, I should add just a, a point. Um, I think there's a... There is a point of confusion that happens over this because you'll hear people uh, who are opposed to circumcision uh, use uh, phrases like, um, you know, that you can't do it for no good reason. I've, I've used phrases like that myself, right? That you can't for no good reason. And of course, what we mean is that for a reason that's, um, for, for a reason that doesn't trump all of the problems that we're talking about, the suggestion isn't that there aren't uh, significant cultural reasons for the practices or that they haven't been attributed significant cultural, you know, significance. That's, that's not the argument. I think everyone accepts that these are deeply embedded cultural practices, whether you're American or Jewish or African, um, and, and cultural practices of this nature have a tendency to collect very important rationales as they sort of perpetuate themselves. And yes, they're important cultural practices, but that doesn't override all of the problems, and I think that's really the crux. It's, it's, it's to recognize and, and articulate. We recognize that these are central cultural practices, that they have important cultural value, but that value doesn't override the human rights violations that, that we're talking about. Also, Jillian, this is a medical ethics discussion, and um, our nursing licenses, a doctor's medical license, it doesn't require them to be a cultural agent of a ritual. There's nothing in there that says that we have to do any such thing. And in fact, we shouldn't do any such thing if it violates the individual's right. So they need to take it down the road a piece if they think it's so, so important to their collective autonomy, like you were talking about, that still doesn't eclipse our licenses and our ethical and, you know, like nursing ethics to protect our vulnerable patients or a doctor to do no harm. Doesn't yeah, that. and the United Nations does make a point about uh, female genital cutting that, you know, yes, it's a cultural practice and we need to, you know, respect cultural practices, but, you know, they'll draw a line and say, no, this is a harmful to the child, so we don't recommend that. But it's the same thing. We've got this gap where we'll say it's not okay to do to girls, even though they have a cultural reason to do it, but it is okay to do to boys, you know, and it, there's, there's the disconnect again. Um, I, I apologize because I came in late, so please excuse me if, if my question is something that's already been dealt with or covered, but I'm wondering if anyone in the room might be, be able to offer me a little guidance on this. Often when I sit with, um, with families who are considering um, circumcising their sons in, in my work, I will... Um, you know, have this sort of touch on the ethical, you know, conversation as much as they're willing to let me. And what I come up against is is um, often with the men in the room who who are circumcised is, so you're in, in, in this ethical kind of um, viewpoint that we're then looking at what was done to them as unethical. And so then there's obviously the implication that those that did this to you are unethical and therefore it's a rejection or you know somehow that these people have done something awful to you and then when we hit that point in the conversation often 
things kind of go silent and there's this back away because it's such a, I think because it's such a painful thing. So, you know, when, when I'm sitting here listening to sort of the, the intellectualization of the ethics of this, and it all makes sense to me, it's all, it, it, you know, but when that emotional component comes in, um, you know, either as, as educators or, or as people in the health pr profession, I'm wondering if anyone has, has any uh, insight yeah. Where, where do you go on that next yeah, level? Well, do you know what you, I mean? You've gone in from the realm of you know, giving them uh, awareness that their child is a person separate from them who may want to have a say in about what happens to his body. I mean, I think when you talk about ethics, people say, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong, you know? Um, but, but several medical organizations do say, we ought to be talking about the ethics of this with, with our clients, whether it's comfortable for them or not. But when you're getting into the emotional defensiveness piece, you've, you've gone into another realm. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to come up whether you're talking about ethics or not. It's going to come up if you teach them what the f sexual functions of the foreskin are. It's going to come up. And that's the sad thing is that when, uh, when you educate people about this, there's going to be trauma coming up for anybody, for a person who's had it done to them, for a person who's done it to somebody else, for you know, a person who participated in it as a health professional and knows how wrong it is now. And uh, so, um, Marilyn, do you have a thought that you'd like to add to talking about dads that feel that way? Or this is one of the things that makes this issue so difficult, and why it's taken so long. I, I, I spend hours every day doing this for 32 years, talk this fast, you'd think it'd be done by now, right? Just to, sh just to shut me up. Uh, but what man wants to hear? He's been spread, strapped strap down, spread eagle on a plastic board and have the most sensitive, erogenous part of his body cut off and thrown into the trash or sold. Purloined foreskins sold for commercial, commercial use without his consent. What mother wants to hear that her baby suffered needlessly? What doctor wants to admit he's got blood on his hands? And I said that to a doctor, to a doctor who's actually a psychiatrist once, and he put his hands behind his back. I thought that was into his body language. He didn't do it to show me that he, he didn't want to, me to see the blood on his hands, but I knew he had blood on his hands. So it does make it very difficult. Um, it's, it's, it's just hard. And, and if, if the father doesn't hear the first time, he'll, maybe he'll hear the second. Our little video, which you got with your packet when you came in, there's a little uh, uh, no cert video. Uh, show that to your clients, because many doctors have said to me that's the one tool that they've had that's worked again and again and again, because hearing the scream of the babies, or Ellie's film, all also, when, when people, people hear the screams of, of the baby, first of all, it lets your reptilian brain know something's wrong, there's danger, and you need to do something. And the second part is it makes your heart know uh, that this is not a nice thing to do to a baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not easy. The whole thing is not easy. This has been uh, a lifetime of work, as you can imagine. So keep, just keep talking. And I, I just want to add quickly, um, I think art's really important. Uh, one of the things is about art that it, it can do that uh, sort of presentation of facts uh, or ethical arguments even can't do is that it can appeal directly to emotions, so. You know, um, one of the most important parts of my job as a lactation consultant is counseling. So I think counseling is, is the most important um, because you have to find out where they're at and where they're thinking before you can give them information. You can't just overwhelm them with information. So when you start seeing that body language of an emotional wall going up, you need to ask questions and listen a lot more and find out what's really going on with them before you can proceed with more information. So, and would you literally say, I see you, you know, what, what's going on with you right now? Would you, I mean, 
I well, have these. Saying, I have these questions too. Mm -hmm. I'm a nurse. I talk to patients, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think we all need to share yeah. what's worked. How do you feel about that, or, or what are your thoughts on that? Or you know, get them to start talking. Maybe ask an open-ended question um, that gets them to start talking more than just the little. How do you feel about that? But in context to what you had just said, what do you think about? Um, circumcision in, in the United States or, you know, something, something open-ended. One of the things I've come up with, and I've tried for about 10 years to figure out the best way to talk to parents, <laughs> that is, is to literally just ask the question, well, have you considered not circumcising? Because that's not a threatening question, that's but it like, you have permission to think about not circumcising, and maybe they haven't even thought about it, right. which probably a lot of them haven't. And if they have, then, then they'll say, yeah, well, we just thought it would be easier to take care of if we had it done. Then you have something to, you know, educate them about rather than just going in there and beating them with information. Yeah, in, in my certain practice, a lot of times I don't meet, sometimes, well, once in a while I meet them beforehand and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it. But most of the time I meet them afterhand and then I'll talk about scheduling the next appointment. And they go, oh, well, I can't do that because he's being circumcised. And so I'll kind of give them, you know, that's not medically necessary and kind of wait to see, you know, how, how open they are to discussing it and then suggest, well, how about if we just put it on hold for a little while because he doesn't have the hang of breastfeeding yet and this is going to really interfere with that. And, and then just give them more information on the next appointment and, and so forth. Yeah. The other thing, if there's one answer, if there's one way to do it and there was one right way to do it, it would have already stopped. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, you have to, you're dealing with individuals, that's all. I'd, I'd like to, and I hope this doesn't sound like hectoring, but I'd like to remind the medical professionals in the audience that actually when you're counseling parents about circumcision, you already have a patient, the unborn child, and that is your only patient. You're counseling the parents, in other words, you're chatting with them, but they're not the patient, they're not the person to be operated on, so fundamental bioethics applies. And it seems to me at that point, you need to be an aggressive advocate for your client, the patient, you can, you can cajole and jolly up the parents all you like and talk to them about these other issues, and I think you need to. But, but, I, but I, at a certain point, you have to realize that that's sort of window dressing for the fundamental bioethics. Yeah, and how do we get the parents to, to recognize that we're, that we're protecting the child? That that's, that, well, yes, of course. Of course, and once they, once they begin to see it, perhaps they'll begin to see the child as an, as an autonomous person. It is, uh, it is interesting that, that there have been studies done showing that parents do, you could list all of the diseases, there's about 100 problems with circumcision, there's about 100. Dr. Bob Ben Howe has a 20-page informed consent, but most doctors say parents come in with their mind already made up, and they're made up around cultural issues, they're not made up around medical issues. You can just endlessly show them pictures of mangled penises, they'll still ask for circumcision if they're that that set on it. Yeah, well, that's why process is, the process is really asked backwards because most of them aren't even, they don't even come to think about it. Well, they've already made their decision based on no information. Then they show up at the hospital and they're, made, uh, they're asked before any problem presents itself whether they want a surgical procedure done. And then after they've already committed in their heads and the doctor has already given the stamp of approval by asking the question, then, you know, three lines of minor uh, complications and you know platitudes come out as informed consent and that's it the whole thing is a travesty I was gonna say that you you talked about something in your presentation that first actually before I go that I just applied for a master's degree uh, in medical ethics and law and it was one of the 
the three that I applied for, and I thought, mm, I don't really want to do this. But your presentation really kind of uh, solidified that that's actually something that I would like to continue. So that was good. But it, uh, in addition to that, um, you talked about the commercial use of uh, the amputated foreskin tissue. Could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a, a lot of detail, but um, I know that foreskin um, s cells are used in a number of different products um, for research purposes, for growing skin grafts, um, and for cosmetics. And I don't know that, I'm, I'm not going to make any claims about, um, you know, people making millions of dollars off of purloined foreskins. I, you know, I, I don't know who's collecting them or how they've been collected or whether one foreskin was collected 50 years ago and has been growing cells. I don't know how, I don't know all of that, but I know that they are used in these commercial products. And there are specific bioethical um, restrictions on what you can do with tissue that's been removed from a human being. The person is supposed to give consent for its use, and there is supposed to be some kind of arrangement by which that person can be compensated for the use of their body tissues. And both, and both of those are in um, United Nations documents uh, on, human, on uh, bioethics. So um, that's, that's the most I can tell you unless somebody has more uh, specific information. We had an attorney who went to the FDA when the Aplograph, I think it was, or one of the bio, biogenesis or something, one of the, the skin re reconstruct uh, generation um, companies was doing this stuff. And, and he, was, he was saying, these, you're, these are purloined body parts, and this is, a, this is not ethical, it's not legal. And they didn't listen to him at all. They, just, they dismissed him totally because there was so much money. He said the money involved was incredible. So it was just interesting that uh, it, it was all about who was going to make the money and how they were going to get, get the foreskins. I was at the uh, local post office. The, the postmaster, of course, knows what I do, as, as does everybody who talks to me. Um, so, uh, and, and, he's, and he told me that just before I had come in, that somebody else in the, had just come in, to, a nurse who, works, who lives in the valley where I do, who had come in, and she was on her way to the hospital to collect the foreskins so she could deliver them to, a, to mm. one of the bioengineering companies. Yeah. And, and, and I think it was $150 each they got for it, something like that. It was horrible. I don't know how widespread that is. I, it doesn't, doesn't occur at my hospital at all, so I, I don't really know. I, I think maybe there needs to be an expose done on that, but I don't think we have specifics. Uh, um, I'm really glad that you asked that question, Travis, because that was what I was going to ask, was um, like in regards to this dialogue about ethics and like, like what is the literal cost of doing this? Like um, Marilyn had mentioned, it's like a million or a billion dollar industry, and like how much it, how much does one circumcision cost for um, a family? Or I don't know how that. I think where the money it's probably in the newborn period is it's in the several hundred dollar range. I think if it's done uh, outpatient or older, it's going to cost more. But uh, do you have any other? Several. I've, I've heard between 100 and 400 dollars for a newborn. I also, I also read that uh, any practice that incorporates circumcision increases their profits by 114 thousand uh, dollars a year. Well, and I think you know I, I'm hesitant to to attribute the 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 continuation of circumcision to just you know the financial motivations but the fact is that in the countries that used to circumcise and now no longer do a big part of that was that the government stopped paying for it so there wasn't a money stream for it it had to come out of pocket and we don't have that system here in the United States private insurance for the most part 
pay for it. Most states pay for it with Medicaid, although more and more have stopped paying for it with the budget problems and because it's not medically necessary and it goes against federal mandate. Um, but I think anytime there is a, a money flow, that's going to be part of the, the factor. Now, here in Las Vegas, um, circumcisions were not, are not traditionally done in the hospital, which I think helps a lot. It gives the parents a chance to bond with their baby. Um, I don't know why that is, and I don't know if that's changed because we have so much uh, big growth so fast that we have a lot of new hospitals. But as far as I know, it's still not being, and I don't know if that's statewide or not. I don't know if anybody knows if it's like that other, uh, elsewhere, and I don't know the reason why. And it would be helpful if you could find out the reason why it's not done here to see if it, we could use that for other states. Well, I do know that you know the, the Medicaid states are all over the country, but everything west of the Rocky Mountains except for New Mexico um, does not pay for circumcision with Medicaid. So all the rates on the west coast is the lowest of the country. California was the first one in 1982, and so it's been a long time for not paying for circumcisions, and it's become the norm not to circumcise. But the, but the question is, the, the data we have have to do with hospital discharge data. So that data may look very low, but how much of it is taking place in doctors' offices afterwards, I don't think anybody really knows it. And just like with anything else with medical practice, it's going to vary from region to region. Yeah. Nevada actually has the lowest circumcision rate in the country, um, less well, than 18%. For, for hospital but, discharge but, but our, data. From, from the hospital s surveys. So uh, the, the concern has always been it's not being done in the hospital. That's why it doesn't show up. So, it's, so the circumcision rate might be higher. Let's hope not. I have to tell you, I, I don't think that the move from hospital circumcisions to outpatient is a particularly good one. For one thing, we have no notion of what the morbidity is, none whatsoever. There's not a single state in the U.S. that requires outpatient circumcision reporting, and no doctor is required to report a botch. And I talk to pediatricians all the time who say, I see two, three botches a week, but you know, what can I do? I can't tell the son, I can't tell the family, I'm sort of stuck, just you know, whatever. It also seems unlikely to me that the parents are going to go back to the person who botched the circumcision. Right. And so they're often not going to know that they botched the circumcision. And well, and John, I'm sorry. John, you're mentioning uh, no, no way to track what goes on in the outpatient. There's no way to track what goes on in the inpatient either because nobody's keeping statistics. There is no nationalized system for tracking adverse events after circumcision. So we don't really know how many babies die or need antibiotics or blood transfusions or what we don't know. Yeah, I was just going to add that we have some very recent data from the American Academy of Pediatrics that the rate of revision circumcision seems to be climbing, and no one has been able to give an adequate account as to why that is. Revision circumcision being that, you know, parents have the baby circumcised in the hospital, and then for some reason they need to go in for further surgery uh, along those lines. Dr. Marty Coyne, who's a pediatric urologist in Children's Hospital in Denver. He's a leader in um, repair of botches. He makes his entire living repairing botches. Most of his babies, the children he sees are under age two. And he said that there's a, like a, there has been a push in medical schools to make the circumcisions loose. And so then they have adhesions because they do take very little foreskin and then they leave it and then it re-adheres. And so then they go in for a revision or a, or a second cut. And also I worked urology surgery for four and a half years. And one of the urologists that I worked with, his entire living was three and a half days of botch repairs on adults. 
and a day and a half of office. And that's one urologist in one city. And it, he made an entire incredible living on that. And, and by the way, repairing botches is easy. Is easy. You simply just take off more tissue. You take off the last guy's scar tissue and create new scar tissue and make the, the penile sheath even shorter. It's an easy surgery and it's even more destructive. Any other questions? I, I wanted to say if you're a health professional or doula or midwife or whatever, I do have some handouts on informed consent that I developed relating to circumcision. I'd be happy to give you one. And uh, I know there's some excellent handouts in your packet from NOSERC. Uh, Colorado NOSERC has developed its own parent handout, so if you want to have that to use with your clients as well, I have copies of that. So thank you very much. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. <laughs>